Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. As Christians, we believe that every person in relationship with God has a calling from God. We read this in passages such as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, where Paul tells us, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. We live out these callings and good works that God has called us to in the every day of our lives. Whether you are an employee, entrepreneur, homemaker, or missionary, you must discover how God has called you in your time and place. My guest on today's show wants to help us discover our calling and follow it faithfully. His name is Gordon T. Smith, and we discuss his newest book, Your Calling Here and Now. Gordon Smith is the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta, where he also serves as professor of systematic and spiritual theology. He's an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and a teaching fellow at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. He is the author of many books, including Institutional Intelligence, Courage and Calling, Called to be Saints, and Evangelical, Sacramental, and Pentecostal. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list if you have not done so already so that you can get all of our latest content sent directly into your inbox. Just visit visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you've been helped by any of our content or episodes, please leave Filter a rating and review and share this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and write us a review on Apple. When we take these simple steps, it really helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Gordon Smith. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Delighted to be with you, Aaron. Well, I really appreciate you making the time. I'm sure that you have a very busy schedule being an author, speaker, and seminary president. Uh, We already heard your bio in uh, the intro segment, but could you tell us just a little bit about what is your daily life like? What what does your vocation look like day to day since that's what we're going to be talking about here in a minute? Well, I think from ever since my mid to late 30s, I have been involved in academic administration. I've moved in and out sometimes of uh, involvement in the local church, uh, both as a senior and an associate pastor. But uh, since my mid-30s, I've been involved in uh, Christian higher education, both as a professor and teacher and writer, but uh, primarily in administration. And though I'm working at home today, uh, the vast majority of the email messages coming and going have to do with matters of governance, matters of finances, matters of personnel, the usual, the usual kinds of things that cross the president's desk um, in, a, in a small Christian private university and theological seminary. Yeah, so I'm sure you've got a lot going across your desk and on your plate. Uh, but you have this new book that's going to be coming out on, uh, last I checked, the release date is June 14th. 
The title of the book is called Your Calling Here and Now. What's the need that you saw which motivated you to write this book? Uh, I think, well, two or three things in particular. One, I did publish a book a number of years ago entitled Courage and Calling, in which I uh, focused primarily or almost exclusively on how do we discern our calling or our vocation. And I spoke of it largely as singular. And then I did the same thing in a book that I published about 10 or 15 years later and entitled Consider Your Calling, Six Questions to Help You Discern What It Is You're Called to Do. But I think what I've meant in to do in this publication is kind of a, a complement to that. Uh, it's captured in a sense by one chapter in the book in which I talk about not calling, but callings. And recognize that at any given time in our lives, we have multiple obligations, opportunities and obligations that press themselves upon our lives. So at any given time, I'm a university president, I'm a writer and a speaker, I'm a father and a grandfather, I'm married to Joella, uh, and I'm the assistant gardener at our home. I'm not the lead gardener. Mm -hmm. My wife is the lead gardener. I'm the assistant. Mm -hmm. But that's actually important work that I do. So we have these multiple callings. And I, I had hoped that in this publication, I could not take away from what is your vocation. I don't want to do that. But at the same time, uh, give tools so we can manage these multiple points of engagement graciously and not continually be stressed by the limitations of time or feeling pulled one way or the other. And we will always find attention. Attention's fine. But to try to have to navigate all of uh, those multiple obligations and callings, to use it in plural language, that inevitably intersect our lives. Yeah, so there's a lot of terms being thrown around, uh, both in this conversation and any time that we start to talk about calling or vocation. I think it's helpful whenever we define these terms, especially ones that seem to either have some overlap uh, or maybe sometimes are, aren't used in the most precise manner. Uh, it's a book about vocation. So what does that word mean? What, what is vocation and what is its relation to a calling or a job? Uh, can they be used interchangeably or does each one have its own nuance? Well, no doubt. I'm using the language of vocation and calling synonymously, but you're right to probe because what lies behind this, I would say, is three things. One, it's a recognition that the work that we do, the way in which we, in word and deed, engage our world matters. So we're taking our work seriously and, and we're asking, what is, the, what is the good work to which I have been called? And so part of the agenda is to affirm the legitimacy of work and not view leisure or retirement uh, as the preferred outcome, but actually take our work seriously and realize that we've been wired, we've been created to do good work and that our work matters. And it matters to us individually. I, I've had the privilege, for example, of building a birdhouse with my granddaughter. And at the end of it, having her hold it and say those exquisite words, grandpa, we did it. And her deep joy in having done something that we did together but it was good work and she recognized it. She was part of it. I think we're wired to do good work and we wanna know, we wanna participate with the work of God. So, I'm, And so part of that is to recover a biblical theology of work um, and uh, against the idea one, that manual work is diminished, that secular work, marketplace work is somehow diminished, but to affirm work and all of its manifestations. Secondly, to affirm the, the legitimacy of myself as an individual, that we are not generic persons. 
that you and I have different gifts, different sensibilities, different locations, and that God's call on our lives is particular to this time in this place. And so I opened this book. It's entitled, At This Time and In This Place. You know, how are you called today? Right now, your calling and my calling intersect. Uh, you bring different skills to this conversation than I do, but, uh, but recognizing that, we're, that, that the human person is not generic. And therefore, I think self-knowledge is hugely important to recognize that the calling of God on our lives is congruent with how God made us. And then thirdly, what I've been intimating, the language of vocation assumes the priority of divine initiative. That is, I acknowledge that my life ultimately is not my own, but it belongs to God. And I'm a steward of, of, of the ways in which God has given me opportunities or responsibilities. So I do my work in response to the divine initiative. So I think those three things, recover a biblical doctrine of work, the affirmation of the, the worth, the inherent integrity of the individual person, and then thirdly, um, the divine pri- priority or the divine initiative that is assumed in the language of both calling and vocation. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the Christian's life is supposed to be, be lived uh, under God's authority and pleasing to God, not just in one area of personal ethics or mm-hmm. personal morality, but rather our entire life. And even the career that we're in or the job offers that we are considering is a part of our spiritual life. Is that what you're saying? Oh, Aaron, without doubt, without doubt, without doubt, I, I, I get concerned when Christian communities seem to define Christian spirituality or piety entirely in moralistic terms. Um, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a civil person. I'm a moral person, whatever that language might be, that does not actually realize. Uh, there's a fascinating expression that Eugene Peterson kind of introduced into our language. He used the phrase vocational holiness in the subtitle of one of his books. And I thought, what a, what a what an apt way to phrase that my work is actually an essential part of the way I live out my life as a child of God, as a follower of Christ. So if I'm going to walk in the Spirit, I'm going to be asking, what is as I walk in the Spirit, what is the good work to which I'm called? And I um, part of my part of the fulfillment of my identity as a Christian believer is to discern that and hopefully courageously embrace it. Absolutely. I think that, and I agree with you, and I, I think that a lot of people are trying to seek the Bible's wisdom and submission to the Bible in their personal piety, if you want to put it that way, or morality. Sure. Yeah. But then whenever it comes to their career uh, and what they want to do with their life, they then start to look to the world and whatever is given to them by uh, teachers at a secular school or whatever kind of lifestyles put before them on social media and so on. So there's this, there's this bifurcation yeah, yeah, well between said. following God in one area of our life and then following the world in another area and leads to a, uh, a uh, stunted discipleship. No, that's a very good way. What to is put the it. difference? Good way. To so so what it. is the difference between the world's view of vocation? If it even has a, category called vocation and then what the bible provides that the world is missing no i and i i enjoyed your kind of wrestling with the question of language there at the end because the the word vocation is getting broader circulation outside of the christian community and i kind of chuckle at it because i say inherent in the word vocation 
is that this is coming from outside yourself. That is, you don't choose this, you are chosen. So it is a little humorous to me that that language is getting more traction, but uh, that's fine. Uh, but I do think it is imperative that within the, within the context of the local church, or I serve as the president of a, of a liberal arts university and theological seminary, but that, that an emerging generation of leaders who are being called, I'm using the language of vocation, into business, into education, into the arts, that they have some sense as powerfully as those like myself that were called into religious work and pastoral leadership, that I'm doing this in response to the divine to divine initiative. I'm doing this work in the production of goods and services to the greater glory of God. I'm a teacher in a public school. I may be the only Christian there. I want to be there as an authentic witness to the presence of Christ in that place. So, and as an artist, I'm not doing this ultimately to serve myself, but to bring glory to Christ and to serve my neighbor. Uh, probably, I think to some degree, uh, where I, I sense students feel the greatest pressure. We have students in behavioral science who feel called into social work. Terrific. And they have a keen sense of the call of God in their lives. But those called into engineering and often the sciences and in business, often parents that want their kids to be lawyers, engineers, or doctors. Those are your three choices. Why? Because they're linked to certain kinds of prestige within our society and culture or certain kind of remuneration. And, at, at, and, and while indeed, I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss prestige or honor uh, or remuneration, but if we don't set those aside, as often as not, they become a block to the ways in which God is genuinely calling us. Uh, so I have a son in business, but he knows that if the pursuit of, of money is the only thing that drives me, it is empty and it is hollow and ultimately toxic, that he needs to see his own sense of call, even in business, as ultimately to the glory of Christ, to meet my needs of my family, to the glory of Christ, to meet the needs of my family and to serve my neighbor. And it's no different. It's no different in business than in any, in any other walk of life. And therefore... I think when we preach Sunday morning, that is that we are equipping people, we are equipping the people of God to be all that they are called to be Monday to Friday. So why would our proclamation of the kingdom of God and the exposition of scripture not be about equipping and empowering God's people for the work to which they're called as homemakers, as business leaders, as teachers, as artists in the galleries uh, through that week? And so when I, when I give seminars to pastors and preachers, that's what I'm, I'm urging them to, to think that way, to imagine who's the pharmacist, who's the business leader, who's the school teacher, who's the artist, who's the carpenter in my congregation, and preach in such a way that you've empowered them, you've sustained them, you've renewed their hope, and you've given them kingdom eyes for the work that they're doing mm -hmm. Monday through Friday. That makes me, reminds me of, uh, I think it was an essay by Dorothy Sayers. Yes, he said yes. that typically oh. preachers only care about uh, the carpenter doing his work so that he can tithe. But other than that, he has nothing to contribute to the church. Oh, good good call to quote Dorothy Sayers. You just gained two more. You had plenty of points, Aaron. No worries. But anyways, you just gained some, a couple of points. But I, I'm afraid she's spot on so that we kind of roll out the carpet, the red carpet, you know, thinking here the book of James. For the people of financial means within our congregation, because we think they can help us, uh, you know, do the capital projects of, of expand our facility and pay our salaries. Um, 
And I, I, I always keep in mind, I mean, I'm a president, I'm involved in fundraising, but I always want to keep in mind uh, Jesus' words about the widow with the two small coins and to not underestimate the ripple effects of the gifts and generosity of those that have more meager means, but also that our default mode is that each of these people on Sunday morning is, is, a, is, a, is a witness to the kingdom of God in their work, both the carpenter as well as the medical doctor, both the homemaker as well as the school teacher. Uh, and I, I'm guilty as charged when somebody tells me, you know, they're a corporate leader. Um, I'm, really? Uh, which, which company? I'm, I'm curious. And when you tell me you're the president of the university, as over against the head of maintenance in the university, I, I guilty as charged. It kept, you know, I, I, I note it as well. And it's why even when I move through the building on my own campus, I make it a point that those that are involved in the cleaning, renovation, refurbishment of our campus, they know I value their work and value it deeply. Because I know that in our society, we tend to have this hierarchy and unfortunately, it, it percolates into the church as well. And let me add this. I think it creates a lot of unhappiness. So when a young person feels huge pressure from their parents and their society to go into a line of work because it has good remuneration, in actual fact, it, it leads to one-dimensional people whose work is not deeply congruent with their deep aspirations and loves. And so a few years ago, uh, my wife and I were with a a fellow in his late 30s. His grandfather had been a doctor, medical doctor. His father was a medical doctor. The whole family system assumed that he would pick up the baton. And you mentioned Carpenter. His deep love was working with wood. And now he does fine, fine furnishings and, and, and with deep joy and finds deep joy in bringing these, these fine furnishings into churches, into businesses, and into people's homes and in ways that's congruent with how God wired him. But sometimes, yeah, we come up when you said, you know, the secular society, I get it. But as often as not, it's the it's the pressure of a family system as much as anything. Um, yeah. And and that family system, I think, hopefully within the churches that you and I are part of, there can be a cultivation of a broader vision of what God is doing in the world and an affirmation, a celebration of what God is doing in the world. So um, I'm actually preaching this weekend at a congregation that every month profiles one, uh, one, one, one stream or one thread within their congregation. And no surprise, hmm. in September, they celebrate all the school teachers and university profs and have them stand and hip hip hurrah, they clap. Uh, and no surprise, perhaps in tax season, they have all the accountants and finance people stand and clap and thank them for their work and tease them a little bit. Hmm. But they also ha have a month in which they celebrate all of those involved in the health hospitality industry, cleaning hotels, taxi drivers, uh, people involved in the tourism industry. And, uh, and I wonder actually within my own circle, whether it's the people that clean the rooms in the hotels of our cities that, that feel kind of most neglected, most taken for granted. And can our churches find ways to affirm them and celebrate them and ask for God's Ask them to stand and say, God bless you for that work. Uh, and not merely those who are at the, within our society's assumption of who is it that God notices. Uh, but who does God yeah. notice week to week? That's excellent. You write in the book about the need to face reality when mm -hmm. it comes to discerning our calling. And this is, 
something that got me really excited as I was reading it. Uh, you wrote, discerning vocation is a matter of getting beyond the if only, which leads to wasted emotional and intellectual energy. What are the kind of, what do you mean by that if only? And what are the kind of if onlys that obstruct people from being able to discern their calling? Oh, did I write that? Oh my, that is <laughs> a, word, a word to myself. I, I must have been projecting. Um, well, I, I, I think about this on the national scale as well as on the individual scale, but also in the life and witness of a church community or an organization such as my own. Um, I might wish that my university had less debt, had better buildings, was better located. I mean, I could give you the whole list of what I would wish for. And it probably would be, then the, the university would move somewhere in South England by the ocean. But no, this is where I've been placed. And I could wish that I had become the president of university with more financial resources, but I wasn't. So there it is. And how much time do I want to spend wishing about this rather than just get on with it? This is what's been given to me. And the thing is, every last one of us has experienced setbacks, disappointments. We've been fired when we should never have been fired. Uh, an aspiration we had to finish a degree program. Our, our spouse got sick or something happened and that had to be put on hold and let Lo and behold, it never happened. And we can spend all kinds of, as I put it there, emotional energy wishing that our circumstances were different, uh, ruining decisions we have made or decisions that others have made that have adversely affected us. And all of us have both end. All of us can say, I wish I had done such and such differently, or I regret that my parents did this to me, my job fired me, whatever it was. Or we can turn and say, in the immortal words of Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who's immeasurably able to do more than all we ask or imagine, Lord, in this time and in this place, not as I wish it to be, that's neither here nor there, but how I am called. And as I th said, I think, I think nations need to do this as well, not to be too hard on our, on our friends across the Atlantic, but I think Brexit was an act of nostalgia. I want to say, no, the new United Kingdom, the new England, Wales, Scotland, is part of the United is part of Europe. Own this, embrace it. It's great. It's not a problem. It's a good thing. This is the new reality. Don't live nostalgically for a previous era when Britannia was ruling the waves. It's been over a century that that happened. I want to say, you know, get over it, move on. And it's easy for us on this side of the ocean, but sometimes we're nostalgic about our own countries, and we say we want we want to go back to a previous era as though that's even possible or desirable. No. For this time and in this place, what does it mean to be Canada or the United States or whatever country we represent? Our organizations, our churches, uh, we might all wish to be a large mega church. But my son's the pastor of a congregation in Courtney, British Columbia. It's a small city. It's not going to be a mega church. And he's not trying to make it. He's asking for this place and in this time, what am I being called to do and to be? And I, uh, we both get involved in conversations with, with colleagues, friends, other men or women, but other men on the journey, and uh, and they've had they've had a rough go along the way. They've had to declare bankruptcy, or they they bought a house and they found that it was deeply flawed. And yikes, uh, that financial setback hit them, or perhaps a marital setback, or a significant sickness or death in the family. Very few people have not had some significant intersection in their lives that has taken them through a valley. 
Uh, and that's why I think part of what we speak is to, to, well, let me just say this, to own that with them. I'm not, please don't hear me dismissing the pain, the suffering, the disappointment. We lament the loss. We feel the pain, the, the marriage that has been broken, the business that went bankrupt because, uh, you know, you were a coffee shop and Starbucks moved in down the street and took all your business away. I'm, I'm with you, friend. That should never have happened. That Seattle-based multinational and your local coffee shop, and I'm, I'm a big believer in the local coffee shop, so I thought I'd bring that one up right now. Uh, right. You know, family-owned and operated coffee shop, talk to me. I'll be there as long as you have a good, you know, a good cappuccino. That's a, that's a criteria. But, uh, but, but somebody moved into the neighborhood, whether it's Walmart or Starbucks, a big multinational. Now your business has gone belly up. I ache with you for that. In fact, I'll let you be angry about it. But now let's wind the clock down. Let's wind the temperature down and say, okay, take a deep breath and say, now as we turn the corner and do so in response to the call of God, that is rather than despair or throw up our hands or get cynical and depressed, let's walk together and let's encourage one another and let's be part of church communities that sustain that kind of vibrant capacity for hope uh, and not despair, uh, which can so easily percolate into um, our hearts and lives, especially uh, when we've experienced significant setback and disappointment. Mm. So let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, makes total sense. I'm, I'm caught up in the if onlys. Maybe for some of them, it is unable to move on from a setback or mistake in their past. For others, it might be a this future that they're looking forward to, but then also kind of frozen by. They can't they can't get enough out of the future to start living and working well in the present. And so they hear this and they say, "Okay, that sounds great. I want to be able to do it, but it's a little bit easier said than done, right? I, I want to move on from the if onlys, but but I I feel like I can't move on from my past. This past hurt, let down." is is holding on to me or in yeah. you know, similarly for someone who's frozen by their future what kind of practical help do you give to them counsel yeah. guidance for how how they can actually do this project of getting letting go of the if onlys i would say uh, two things and it, two of them come to mind rather quickly there's no avoiding the quality and character of your relationship with christ and the grace of the holy spirit that connects you deeply in terms of your identity, your hope, your aspirations are located in your relationship with the risen and ascended Lord. That is, there's no avoiding the cultivation of that fundamental identity relationship in your life that what the church community does is help to lift up our eyes and help us to see Jesus and feel the force and presence of Jesus in our lives. So for me, that is first and foremost, what tends to happen for me is in my, my daily prayers start to get neglected, or I start to feel that God has abandoned me. Where are you? And that's what takes me back to the Psalms where I can say bluntly, Lord, I don't see you quite here. You know, and I, I laughed the other day with a friend when he said, but Gordon, God's timing is always perfect. And I said, um, you, nice life, because where I live, I'm, I'm, the Lord seems to be delayed a little bit. I have some concrete evidence for that. And, I, and I'm grateful for the Psalms that we can be honest with God that way. Lord, are you, are you here? Are you, are you in this? Because yeah. I, I don't see a lot of evidence. 
But the psalmist always ends, yet my hope will re be. I will rejoice, yet, 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 despite my circumstances. So number one, there's no avoiding that vertical link. And number two, we cannot navigate these issues alone. Simply cannot. What Where I often ache is when I meet men, much more frequently than women, who have no conversation partners, who seemingly are navigating this alone, trying to make sense of their work situation alone. And you can't. We're not designed and wired. So I think of the vertical connection. But what I often will say then, so who are the two or three significant others in your life? Who are the men? I'm going to speak to men for the moment. Who are the two or three men that are significant players, conversation partners, who are, uh, I mean, I think the ideal is that at least one of those men is a generation older than yourself. Not your father, maybe your uncle, but a man, a generation older than yourself that is a substantial and uh, uh, encourager, blesser, conversation partner. Not somebody who gives unsolicited advice, but somebody who knows how to bless, encourage, and affirm. Uh, and I just, I, I, I would not be here were it not for the older men in my life who at strategic times uh, went for the long walk on the beach and said, hang in there, you're good. No, 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 this is not the end of the universe as we know it. Gordon, chuckle in at, uh, you know, this is the end of the universe as we know it. He says, well, maybe not. Maybe actually the sun will come up tomorrow. And then I think at least two other men, your own age. Um, and again, I would say I wouldn't be here without these men who have been closer to me than brothers and, and keep me out of my slew of despondency. So even uh, that's why, in part, this, uh, this new book has been written very much with the idea that read this together and hold one another to account. So that going back to our earlier point, it's my friends who say, oh, Gordon, you're very good at the if only, because you know that as soon as you say if only, we'll call you up. So you slip it in very subtly and they call me out. They, 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 they catch the edge of where I'm, uh, the little bits of despair or of nostalgia or of feeling sorry for myself. And these are men that love me, but will not flatter me. They'll call me to account. They believe in me as I believe in them, by the way. So for me, those are the two fundamental things, regardless of the circumstances of our lives, to be cultivating a relationship with God in Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And let me say this, my son, who's a pastor, <clears throat> he's observed that one of, the one of the outcomes of the pandemic was to reveal the shallowness of people's spiritual experience, that they didn't have that resource, that fundamental practice and resource to draw on or to fall back on. And they didn't have the social link. So they had all the routines and rhythms of their life and work. And suddenly that was all thrown into conniptions. Conniptions is not my best word, but I understand you can edit these things out. But you get my drift. This needs to be yeah. cultivated, not just, oh my goodness, now I'm in trouble. I've lost my job. I better cultivate a relationship with Jesus and find a friend. And that's, you. whoa, then you're really scrambling. So what I'm suggesting is that this, the cultivation of one's relationship with Christ is part of the routine and rhythm of one's life that one draws upon. And second, one has these two men, one's peers and an older man with whom one's in conversation. And ideally for me, the church uh, cultivates this. That is, the church becomes a place where it's not that all my closest friends are part of the same church community I'm a part of, but 
the church is encouraging the relationship that's vertical and the horizontal relationships. And we know coming out of worship on Sunday, hey, I'll see you for coffee on Tuesday. Uh, let's debrief from this sermon together. Let's talk about what it means to us that you're in these conversations that are that are grace-filled and hope-filled. Uh, so you hear the words of Paul. Uh, the most common exhortation in scripture is encourage one another. So I can write the book on how to do it, but I can't do it alone. I can't navigate my own work alone. It's just sheer presumptuous or hubris. And I feel for those men for whom they go, they get fired and have nowhere, no one to go talk to. And they feel ashamed. Yeah. They feel ashamed. They feel like failures. Um, and they need, um, when my son went through a huge political morass coming out of a church, two older men, senior pastors, who just said to him, Micah, no, no, you're one of us. You're one of us. Hang in there. You're one of us. Uh, the, the, a good will come from this. I just am so grateful that that Micah knew who to talk to, other than his dad, of course. Of course, he wants to talk to me. But uh, no, he needed to talk to to uh, to others who could affirm him uh, after that uh, that tough time. Yeah. I think there's a, a deep and important connection between vocation and responsibility that has to be emphasized and that this calling that God has on our life also comes with the invitation to take up the responsibility and do the things in the here and now to, to follow that calling. And whether it's a future goal that you have that you believe God's given you, you have a responsibility to do the things in the here and now that will lead there. And likewise, I think that if we are caught up and being held back by hurts and mistakes from the past, God is likely putting opportunities in the here and now for us that if we accept the responsibility that come with those those callings and opportunities would maybe, in fact, help us to move on. Yeah, I, so I think yeah, that yeah. when we're well caught said. up, we, we get trapped in the if onlys, at least in my own life and whether others, a lot of the times I think that it's it's. In a, even if we're not consciously thinking of it this way, it is an attempt to escape responsibility because it's a lot easier to just sit by and say, if only what your phrase, my phrase is, uh, it must be nice. Ooh, that, that, that's the one that I always think of whenever we look at others or wow. who are where we want to be or must maybe be nice. where we were and lost it must be nice. Whenever we slip into that, it's really, it's an absconding of our responsibility. Oh, and, my friend uh, and colleague and brother, I think that is so well stated. Uh, and again, I think that's where a good friend um, gently shakes us, nudges us and says, and calls us out of that kind of um, despair, stupor. But for me, so I used a phrase earlier that I think captures this, where I feel sorry for myself. Yeah, must be nice to be the president of that university that's fully funded. How did I end up here? Or how did I end up here with this, that, or the other? Mm -hmm. So that's my variation of it, is when I feel sorry for myself. Self-pity. Um, and I feel victimized. And uh, yeah, it takes all the energy out of the room and out of the energy, all the energy out of my own bones. No, very well said. Uh, amen to all of yeah. that. Self-pity or jealousy. I think jealousy well, is another both, one. Yes, both. Yeah. Wish it, well, see, that's part of both, uh, a, a very appropriate for you to uh, slip that word in there, because part of self-knowledge is coming to terms with who I am 
and that I stopped wishing that I was anybody other than who I am. I stopped wishing that I'm either Tom Brady or any other athlete. I stopped wishing that I'm some performer. I stopped wishing that I was a different pastor. If I'm a pastor, a business leader, I stopped wishing that I'm anybody other than who God made when God made me or jealous of other people's opportunities that are given to them. And that goes to your line. It must be nice. Uh, no, no. To just say here in the here and now, and again, your apt word to take responsibility for what where I have been placed and to actually view it as providential in the providence of God, who is not cruel, but benevolent. I chuckle, not cruel. No, to believe fundamentally in the goodness of God and that that goodness is evident, at least in part, in that how God made me. This was not a mistake. God made me. And then the circumstances in which God has placed me and to, to enter into them then with the deep, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, uh, I'm grateful to God for who God made when God made me. I'm grateful to God that these are the circumstances in which I have been placed and his grace, his wisdom, his encouragement is sufficient for it. If I will lean into the grace and encouragement, of course. Mm. So let's say that someone is hearing this, they're buying it and saying, yeah, I want to focus on the here and now and discern my calling in the here and now so I can accept God's responsibility. But where do I start? What does that mean practically? What would you say to them? What does it mean to practically start discerning their calling in the here and now? I'm going to say two things. Yeah, at least two things. Well, a third comes to mind, a fourth comes to mind. But I, I, I alluded to it earlier. But for me, I cannot overstate the power of the Psalms. So I, I tend to pray or I pray a Psalm every day. This, is, this anchors me. This draws me into the bigger picture of God's purposes in my life like no other part, no other script, biblical or otherwise. So to, to, to be in a psalm every day and just read a psalm a day. This was the practice of Billy Graham, and it's just it's one that many of us just do. And over three months, you've prayed through the psalms, and you start over again, and the, the impact in our lives is iterative. And some days it may not have uh, an immediate emotive impact, but as often as not, it will. It will slow us down. It will anchor us again in the purposes of God in our lives. Secondly, I trust that for each of your hearers, there's at least one person that they can talk to. That is to say, you know, I heard this podcast and I'm, I'm called up and I realize I'm trying to navigate this alone. And I'm feeling either a failure or embarrassed or shameful or whatever it is, um, or I'm feeling overwhelmed, or I'm feeling in over my head, or I'm feeling perplexed, whatever language you want to put to that, you cannot make sense of your circumstances alone. And therefore to say, who can I reach out to and, and get together with the appropriate beverage in hand to talk privately and frankly and openly without trying to kind of impress or facade a safe conversation. Uh, and then thirdly, I think, um, uh, I think the story is actually important. That is to step back and say, what is our narrative? Uh, and so I keep a, a journal and I often find that it's helpful for me when I'm, when I'm in a difficult fix to take some time to look back over my journal over the last year or years and realize that there's a story there of God's faithful presence in my life that I tend to kind of forget uh, what it means. So uh, if, if I'm going to get to know you, if you and I are going to go for coffee and we're going to start a relationship, I'm going to ask you, hey, tell me your story. What brought you to this part of, what brought you to this work? 
What were the circumstances that led to this? Uh, you said you're married and have kids. Tell me about that. Where did you meet her? You know, tell me your story. That is, that story um, will always have within it, always, the footprints of the Spirit. There will always be evidence of the grace of God along the way, even if right now we're not sure we quite see it. So I remember when Joel and I moved to Vancouver, and we had moved from a city where houses are very inexpensive. You can buy a big house for for $100,000. It's crazy. We moved to Vancouver. The same house would have cost a million dollars. And we, we went backwards. We should have gone the other direction. But I went to Regent College and we were in a bind. What are we going to do for housing? And we're walking down the street and we're standing. I know exactly the street corner. This was 1998. So we're talking a long time, you know, 25 years ago, 24 years ago. And we're standing on the street corner waiting for the light to change. And I'm expressing this. What are we going to do? And Joella says, well, shall I tell you the story? God's always provided us with a good place to live. Why would it be any different now? And I said, well, because it's Vancouver. And then she says, it's no different now. And I thought, well said, Joel. And I remember that street corner and I go back to it often to think, if God has been faithful in the past, why would God not be faithful now? So telling our story, even when it's included setback and disappointment and failure even potentially, is I think uh, essential. So number one, I use the Psalms just to speak of get into some kind of devotional practice if you're not already there. Find at least one friend with whom you're not trying to navigate this alone. And thirdly, step back and take some time to tell your story. That's good. And the way that I think of it is you need to tell yourself God's story about you. Mm. Because we often get get caught up in our story about my life. And whenever something doesn't go the way that we had planned, then we get really frustrated. And something that I've trained myself to do in the past couple of years is whenever I get a disappointment, whether it be something small or I uh, I recently, uh, well, in the past uh, couple of years, went through a really big disappointment and immediately after had to tell myself, God's writing a better story. That's very good. I had a story written for myself. That's and, my variation. I, of, I thought I was following God's will, but he's 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 changing it. He's writing a better story. So and I that, really like that. That's my that variation of look for the footprints of the Spirit. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, just say, oh, I was not abandoned. God was present. Yes, I blew it. I, I I'll I'll take responsibility for that. But God's bigger. God's bigger than my my failures and disappointments. And um, and so, what is the story that God's writing that now? I mean, I, these are crazy words I get to be part of. So where is God inviting me into God's story uh, in terms of what I say, what I do, where I do it, and all of that? No, very well said. Man, well, there is a lot more that I want to talk about, but we are getting close to the end of our time. Let's let's just touch on this one uh, very quickly because I was whenever I was surveying the chapters in the book, I haven't been able to get the whole book yet. When I was looking at the chapters, I was surprised with this one. And so if we could just touch on it, you have a chapter on transitions Hmm. in a book about uh, discernment and calling and place and time. What is your message on, uh, in in the context of this book, on transitions in life? Um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm deeply convinced that some people will come out of their early adult years, convinced they're called to be an artist and will be an artist until they're 92. And that's really delightful. Uh, 
you know, going back to your line earlier, nice life. That's great. But for most of us, that will not be the case. Some of us are going to be raising children and they're all going to move out of the home in their late 30s, early 40s. And now you're going to say, I have been a homemaker. Now what is the call of God on my life? Now my circumstances have changed. Or somebody's been in a, in a business and has done successful, but there's a percolation within their heart, a stirring, and they realize maybe I'm called to be. Uh, and so I'm going to sell the business and use those resources to launch uh, a not-for-profit, uh, an art gallery, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, that is, I, I, I want to acknowledge the ways in which mid-career transitions are going to be more common than not. I actually believe, for example, in th that what's emerging in our seminary, the majority of our students in our seminary are mid-career people. It all shifted for the first time this fall. Mm. Up till this fall, the majority were people a year or two or three out of university. They're doing a seminary degree. Now the majority are mid-career. They've retired yeah. as public school teachers. They've taken early retirement and they're going to go into pastoral ministry. It's so cool. And they're funny. They're humorous. You know, they're because they're saying, we're all rookies. I'm 55 and I'm a rookie because I sold the business and, and, and I'm just learning how to preach. And you've got to be humble at that time. I speak to this in the book. You've got to be humble because now you're a rookie. You're, you're, you're beginning there. But those are exciting people who bring the experience of, the, of, of, a, of a lifetime in education or in business or in another line of work into this line of work. And I think um, we, we, we use the language of retirement too freely, not realizing that many people are going to make a transition in their 60s or maybe even later to a focus of work that may be uh, congruent with what they were doing, but now is a, is a new focus, a new energy that is given to them in their 70s. So, you know, my wife teasingly says, now you've written the chapter on transitions. You need to embrace your calling to be a gardener. Oh, okay, here I go. Uh, I wanna, I'm happy to be the assistant gardener, but she's, uh -huh. there's, there's some truth to that, that she wants me to embrace that next chapter and not look back and say, I've, I've always enjoyed what I was. So um, I, I do think that one of the things that our friends can do is to say to us, you know, say to me, Gordon, for years you've been saying, I wish I had more time to write. Maybe you're supposed to quit your job and write. Maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Why do you keep saying that? That is, maybe that's what their, their, their job is to nudge us to do that. And I, and I feel badly for a man that, I, uh, that intersected my life that just simply, simply hated his job but felt he could not retire until he was 65, but easily could have retired at 55, had the financial resources to do so, but had the sense of, I would say, misguided duty. And how I often look back and I wish that he had made that decision in his mid fifties and done what he was, what he loved to do and what he was actually empowered, equipped and called of God to do. Uh, so I think sometimes mid-career transitions, uh, and it's not, sometimes people miss their calling. I'll grant that they went into whatever it was for the wrong reasons and they're finally accepting mm. it. But I think so, but I'm not putting everybody in that category. Uh, I think many people go into a line of work fully called by God and now God calls them peripherally. Well done, my son. Well done, my daughter. But now I want you to just suspend that and just turn to the right here because I've got something for you to do. So a pastor friend of mine who's going into entirely into family systems, theory, counseling, therapy work, because he just sees that that's where he's been a pastor. It's been great. But now as a pastor is going to open a practice and family practice. And I think I'm excited for him. And he's not neglecting his calling. 
This is the new venture to which God is calling him. And it's, it's fun. Yeah. Lots of great stuff there and so much more that we could go into, but we are out of time. I will have the book uh, linked in the show notes so that people can go and pre-order it. Uh, this this episode will be coming out uh, still a few weeks before the book is released. So people can go pre-order it. You can find the link to that in the show notes and the link in the description below of wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast so that you can get Gordon's new book, which is called Your Calling Here and Now. This has been a really great conversation. I've enjoyed it. I think our listeners are going to enjoy it and get a lot out of it. So Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.